All right, just to recap uh, where we are in this passage in Acts chapter 8, um, we said last week, as we looked at the end of Acts chapter 7, that the barometer for suffering, right, in the early church has gone up um, because for the first time in the book of Acts, one of the early believers, a leader named Stephen, was martyred by people who were acting in irrational hate and fear. Um, And this really changes in a dramatic way the story in the book of Acts because now we see, or especially these early believers saw, that now the call of Jesus on our lives means that we could end up dying, laying down our very life, if that's what Jesus wanted us to do. So we talked about how, although Stephen was acting in the power of the Holy Spirit, performing miracles and signs and wonders and, and proclaiming Jesus, how people who were clinging to their idols couldn't take what he was doing. We said last week that it's always dangerous to engage people's idolatries, right? Um, oddly enough, the, the people who killed Stephen had made idols out of things that God gave, except that that's pretty much always what idolatry is, right? Um, If someone sets up a statue of an animal and begins to worship it, sometimes we think of something like that when we think of idolatry. Essentially, what that person has done is taken something that God gave, right, an animal, and begun to worship it, the created thing, instead of the creator. Well, the people who killed Stephen weren't worshiping idols. They weren't bowing down to idols of animals. But they had taken things that God had given that were good, but were not God himself, and begun to worship those things. So they'd begun to worship the law of Moses, the traditions of Moses, the temple. All of these things were good, and all of these things had come from God. They're just not meant to be worshipped, right? And so when Stephen began to poke at these idolatries, this irrational anger and fear came out of them, and they took his life. We noted last week that at his killing was a leader named Saul, and he is going to play a key role in the book of Acts moving forward. Um, So that's where we're going to pick up, except today we're going to learn a little bit about really one of my favorite characters in the book of Acts, and his name is Philip. Uh, He was also one of the leaders that was chosen by the apostles um, to help uh, care for people's needs in the church. And Philip finds himself having to run away because this persecution begins against the early believers. But as he's running, God uses him in some pretty extraordinary ways. And we're going to see something from this point on in the book of Acts that God loves on the mission to break barriers between groups of people. Um, He loves to break social barriers and go into a new place. He loves to use us to show his love to people who are nothing like us. And we're going to see that Philip is going to go north into a region called Samaria. And just a quick history lesson. The Samaritans had a lot of differences from the Jewish people who lived to the south of them. Some of them were political. Some of them were cultural. But the main differences were religious. The Samaritans uh, believed in the same Bible, but just not all of it. They only took as valid the first five books of the Bible. And then in those first five books, they changed some things significantly to fit what they needed, all right? Um, And they worshiped in a different temple. They believed that God had spoken in different ways. And honestly, if, if we were relating to a group like the Samaritans today, we would probably look at a group like that, the way they changed the Bible, just cut parts out of it. We would look at them and probably say, oh, that's a cult, right? Um, they're heretics, right? So that's who the Samaritans are. But uh, in a few weeks, we're going to see when Helen brings the rest of Acts chapter 8 to us, that God also uses Philip to begin ministering into Africa as well, because we're going to find, right, that the gospel isn't just for white people, right? It's not just for Europeans, right? Um, The gospel is going to spread into Africa we're going to find that this gospel is for the whole world, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Amen? Um, So, exciting part of the story. Okay, we're going to begin reading in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And this is a longer passage. We're going to read through to verse 25. So you can read in your Bible if you brought it or on your device. It will be on the screen behind me as well. 
It says, and Saul approved of their killing him. That's Stephen. And then it says this. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. And said, give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, may your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness, and pray to the Lord, in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin." Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Let's pray. Lord, we love being on mission with you because your presence is the best. And so, Lord, today, wherever we are in our journey with you, wherever we are on the mission, whether we're at a low point or a high point, we bless your presence with us, like Clarence was praying. We declare you are with us, whether we feel it or not, just like we were singing. Um, You cannot abandon us. You don't know how to leave us. And so, Lord, we ask that your presence would be strong among us today, wherever we are, as we look at this passage. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I just have three points for you this morning that I want to talk about out of this passage. So much I could say out of this longer passage. Um, But here's the first thing I want to tell you this morning, that the pain is the path to the next part. I think we have this up on a slide. There it is. The pain is the path to the next part. Um, This is often not how we view pain, right? Right? Um, our response to pain when we feel it is very often not, okay, this is the key that's going to open up the door to the next thing, right? Um, But this is what happens for Philip. Um, The church in this passage is experiencing extraordinary pain, unspeakable pain. Stephen has been killed. Not only is he an esteemed leader, but Stephen has friends, right? People who love him, who miss him, right, in the wake of his death. We are told that the church grieves deeply for him um, after his death. And then, not only that, but he gets killed and this persecution breaks out against the church. And it's led by this guy named Saul, who is vicious in the way that he is pursuing Christians to imprison them or to kill them. Uh, One reason we know this is that Luke makes a point of telling us that it is both men and women 
who suffer as part of this persecution. Two things about that. First of all, um, in the ancient world, as brutal as the ancient world could be, it was considered especially heinous uh, to direct violence toward women, right? But that's what's happening here. Saul doesn't care. Men, women, anyone in his path, he is going after them. But Luke also includes this bit of information to tell us that it wasn't just men who were nobly and heroically suffering, but it was women too, right? Also filled with the Holy Spirit that God was using uh, and giving strength to in the midst of their suffering. Um, So this terrible persecution breaks out. Philip realizes that he has to get out of town because he's going to be next. And so uh, he starts leaving. But then, as it turns out, the place of his pain and suffering is actually the thing that God uses to use him in some extraordinary ways. Our tendency is to not see pain as a path. Our tendency in response to the pain is to build a wall, right? To build a fortress around it, right? Um, I was listening to a podcast yesterday about all of the nutritional, I stumbled across this somehow, all of the nutritional studies that have surrounded sugar. And believe it or not, apparently the science is pretty divided on the effects of sugar on the human body. Until they figure it out, I'm just going to keep eating it, right? Um, And so apparently the science is pretty divided. On one side, you have people who are like, that should never cross your lips ever, ever, ever. And on the other side, you have people who say that those kinds of claims are overinflated. But at one point in this podcast, one of the scientists used a term I had never heard before. It was pessimistic meta-induction. Pessimistic meta-induction. Now, I didn't have to say that in the sermon to tell the story. I just said it so you would think I'm smarter than what I am. It work? Okay. All right. Pessimistic meta-induction. That's a fancy word to describe something that actually we've all experienced. Uh, Here's the gist of it. They were talking about how nutritional studies are so unreliable, right? And they change from year to year. And there's a bunch of reasons why, especially when it comes to nutritional studies, science really has not been able to get a handle on this, right? So every year, it seems like a new study is coming out. We know this, right? There's these memes on the internet that say, well, last year this was bad. This year it's good. Next year something else is going to be good or bad, right? But what this scientist who's who's studying nutrition himself was saying is that public confidence in nutritional studies is really low. And what it creates is that when a new nutritional study comes out and says, well, this is what makes you gain weight or this is what causes cancer, most people just glaze over and say, yeah, right, right? That's probably what most of us do in this room. So pessimistic meta-induction is basically this. It's saying 10 years ago, they were telling us we could eat all the sugar that we want and that fat was the problem. Now they're telling us that fat is okay and it's sugar the problem. Ten years from now, they're going to tell us something else. So let's not even try to be healthy, right? What it basically is, is boiling down all of the disappointment of those nutritional studies into one simple conclusion that I'm not going to trust anything or do anything to try to keep myself healthy, right? When I listened to that, I thought, this is what we do with our pain, right? Um. Pessimistic meta-induction is just drawing this one basic conclusion from all of our disappointments, our letdowns, the places where we prayed and it seemed like God didn't come through. It's boiling everything down to this one conclusion that I'm not going to fill in the blank. I'm not going to try that anymore. I'm not going to take that risk anymore. I'm not talking to that person anymore. I'm not going to serve in that way anymore because, and we often have a reason why, right? Because the pain is real. All it is is building up a wall around our pain because walls feel safe. And especially when we paint on the inside of those walls the scenes of our past hurts so that we can look at them every day when we wake up, it feels like we're getting some kind of vengeance out of it, right? But in reality, we've boxed ourselves in completely. It's a very different thing to look at our pain, not as a place where we build a wall around it to protect it, to protect ourselves so we never get hurt again, but we look at it as a path 
that leads us to the next place. I want to suggest, I have this on the next slide, that instead of building a wall, we do something different. And it's really what Philip did in this passage in the midst of his pain. First of all, we acknowledge the pain. Notice that Acts chapter 8 is careful to tell us that the church grieved, and they grieved deeply. They shed many tears. This is so important to say, and I'm so glad it's included in Acts chapter 8, because if we don't grieve deeply, if we don't let that process happen, we will never take another step on the path, right? If If you've been here for any amount of time for our preaching and teaching, hopefully this has sunk in, that your tears are important, important to God, but also important for your healing. And God is not afraid of that journey of grief even though we often are afraid of it. So the first thing is just to acknowledge the pain at whatever level. You know, big pain, little pain, it doesn't matter. Acknowledging the pain is a spiritual practice that I think we have to continue uh, no matter how long we walk with Jesus. But then the next thing, listen and look. It says in this passage that as Philip went um, away from Jerusalem, he's literally running for his life, it says that the church, he and the church, began to preach the word wherever they went. In other words, they, be, they were looking for opportunities. Even in the midst of their pain, they kept their eyes and ears open, which is the complete opposite of building a wall, right? They kept their eyes and ears open to see the next thing that God was going to do, which is why I put here as the third thing. Just ask, what next, God? This is such a helpful question. I encourage you to ask it frequently in life and on mission just to say, what next, God? Um, over the years, we've loved to take people from our church and even teenagers and go into communities where a lot of people hang out outside and listen for where the Holy Spirit is leading us and then go to people and to pray for them. We've seen amazing things happen, healings and divine appointments and things like that. Um, But as we've trained groups to do that, and that's not the only way to do mission, but for some communities, it's really effective. As we've trained people to do that, um, one thing we've trained them to do is when you're out there in the community and it feels like God isn't saying anything or you don't have any direction, just regroup and ask God what's next. What's next? What do you you want to do next? Um, See, part of the lie of pain is that there is no next, right? Right? It steals our future. But with God, we know that there's always a next because there's always hope because there's always another chapter to the story. So we can ask in faith, what next? Now, his answer may not be what we expected. It may not be what we were looking for. I don't think on this day, Philip realized he was going to be in this town, in this community, on this path. This was completely unplanned and probably not even what he desired to have happen. But along the way, he's asking what, ne- what is next. Um, you know, on the mission, when we're talking about pain, there's the big pains and the disappointments. But honestly, many times it's the little pains that keep us away from the mission. What I mean is this. Sometimes we just perceive that a person or a group of people is dangerous or that they're going to be disinterested in Jesus or that they're going to be hostile to our message. And the discomfort that that creates, we might not even know that it's true, but the discomfort that it creates causes us to shrink back, to not engage, to assume that certain people aren't interested in Jesus. That discomfort is a kind of pain. It's mild compared to other pains we might experience, but many times it's those mild pains that keep us from taking the risk, right, to build a relationship with someone who's different than us. Um, I was reflecting on this recently because when Chelsea and I uh, watch a movie uh, together, very often I'm on my phone Wikipediaing everything that movie makes me think of, (laughs) all right? I I miss so much in the movie because I'm just on Wikipedia, all right? And, you know, if the movie has a historical theme, I'm reading about all of that on Wikipedia. If I don't recognize an actor, a lot of times I'm looking that up and I'm reading about their lives, Uh, on my phone. So recently I watched a movie and there was an actor that I didn't recognize. And so I thought, oh, I I don't know anything about him. And so I uh, look up his Wikipedia on my phone. For me, just knowing facts feels so good. All right. So so, uh, I, I start reading about his life and then you know how sometimes you read one thing about someone, then they have the links at the bottom of the Wikipedia article. And so you start following and following and following and just reading more and more. 
And I found out this guy is a super interesting guy, especially for a Hollywood actor. Uh, one reason, because he's made choices that a lot of people with his success and money haven't made. For instance, instead of living in like a mansion, uh, he's living on a farm in an obscure part of the nation and has done that in a principled way. No social media accounts. Um, he's made some really interesting choices. Um, but I ran across like a full-length feature article of him uh, in GQ magazine, actually, on my phone. And um, uh, I'm reading this, and it just got more and more interesting because aside from the interesting choices that he's made, um, he also identifies himself in some ways that at first glance might make us think he has no interest in the message that we're talking about this morning. Uh, for instance, uh, he self-identifies as gender non-conforming, which means that he's comfortable with either pronoun. Um, he says that uh, his political and economic views are really, I mean, not just like the normal like left-right stuff, but progressive to the point of radicalism, honestly. Um, he's pretty outspoken against uh, traditional religion, particularly Christianity and its influence on society. Now, listen, all of that, I'm not saying that none of that is concerning. It probably is, but here's what I'm saying. That if we look at someone like him through the lens of the gossip that's on our TV every night called the nightly news, right? And if we let the nightly news define categories of people, the news loves to do this, right? Black people, white people, evangelicals, immigrants, refugees, Left, right, conservatives, liberals, it always is talking about, this is the thing that is the biggest disconnect for me with watching the news, is that it talks about people in these huge, broad ways, and that does not bear out in my day-to-day -day life, right? People are more complex than that, right? So it feels like a circus to me, a show. Um, but if you buy into that, then you might look at this guy and you might say, this guy has no interest whatsoever in the message of Jesus. This guy is utterly opposed. There's no chance with this guy, so let's not even go there. Let's not try to build a relationship. Let's not, whatever. I'm sometimes in very subtle ways the discomfort of interacting with someone who might not, that we might quite not know what to do with, a, like might keep us away from them. But here's the interesting thing. As outspoken as he was uh, against Christianity, as he understands it in this article, he said something that I just couldn't believe was in the middle of GQ magazine. Um, he was talking about his chickens, right? Not very many uh, Hollywood stars have chickens, but I guess he does. And he's talking about his chickens, and uh, he's talking about a vulnerable part of his story where when the whole Me Too movement um, had just started, he came out with his story that when he was a teenager, there were two uh, male adults who had assaulted him as part of his story. And so a very vulnerable part of the story is talking to the reporter about it. And he talks about how because he experienced injury at the hands of two men, how this was really at the core of his wrestling with what it meant to be a man, a man and masculinity and all these things. He was really struggling with that. Um, and then he says this. He says, you know, chickens are interesting animals because he mostly had chickens and then he had two roosters. And, uh, and he said the two roosters... Um, he said, protect the rest of the chickens in an interesting way. They live in a part of the country where there's a lot of eagles soaring around. And sometimes those eagles will dive bomb the chickens, I guess. It's a, it's a cruel world out there, folks. Um, <laughs> I'm not trying to laugh at the chickens, okay? But, <laughs> but dive bomb these chickens. And, um, and he talked about how sometimes what the roosters will do is they will they will actually get the rest of the chickens into a safe place and then run out themselves and make a ruckus and make themselves vulnerable to the eagle dive bombing them. They can die doing this. And he says, what if we define masculinity that way? As strength in vulnerability. As being willing to lay one's life down for someone else. In the middle of GQ magazine. Now, here's what I'm saying. If we let our discomfort around people who we think aren't interested in Jesus keep us away from them, we will not look and listen. 
and see the opportunities that are available. I read that and I prayed for that guy. I just thought, I hope he has a good Christian friend. You know what I'm saying? Like a good one. Like not one who's going to preach at him. You know what I mean? Like all that kind of stuff. I'm talking about like someone who will be a friend with him. Journey through the discomfort. Look and listen. Because if I were sitting at lunch with that guy and he said that to me about his chickens and roosters, I would tell him, Look, I know you struggle with your understanding of Christianity, but you just articulated what we believe about Jesus better than many Christians can. Right? Um, You'd look for that open door. See, if we build a wall around our discomfort, whatever it is, if the sum total of our pain is that we won't trust, we won't take risks, then we miss the path to the next part, to the next thing, that God wants to do, which brings me to my next point, that when you get to the next part, whatever that looks like for you, the power of God will prove to be present. His power will prove to be there. I'm so glad for this because taking a risk, especially when you're already hurting, is not a pleasant emotion, right? There's a reason why we struggle with fear in those emotional places, but it's a wonderful thing to take the risk in the midst of our pain and to find out that God is showing up in power anyway. As a matter of fact, oftentimes the way that that pain has weakened us has actually made it more possible for God's power to flow through us. Might not be at all what we expected, but his power shows up in extraordinary ways. And so Philip ends up in this place he wasn't expecting to go with people who he might not expect to be open to the message of Jesus. He's hurting inside himself. He's just lost his friend. He's running for life himself, and he begins to lay hands on people, and they begin to get healed. Demons begin to come out of people. Paralyzed people begin to walk. Extraordinary signs and wonders begin to flow through Philip. See, I I get it. In the midst of our pain, there's very often this question, where is God? I want to see him. But where is he? Why does he seem so silent in the pain? You should know this. Scripture uh, is so honest with that part of the human experience that when we're hurting, God can often seem very silent and very distant. Read the book of Lamentations in the Old Testament. It's all about that. The Bible is very raw and honest with that part of the human experience. But here's what I want to tell you. If around your pain you build a wall and just hang out in there, God has all of a sudden become very small to you. The ways in which you might expect him to work have become very limited, right? But if pain is a path and I'm looking and I'm listening, I'm asking what next, God, then God can literally do anything he imagines through me. He can do unexpected things, things that I might not have ever dreamed of myself. I'm not sure if Philip ever dreamed that this kind of thing would happen among the Samaritans, really them, the heretics. But he's seeing God's power show up in this extraordinary way. And this has been so true in my life and in many of your lives. I know you have this testimony as well, that if you want to see the power of God, Ask him what's next and take the risk to take the next step on mission. God has promised his Holy Spirit in the places where we take mission. His Spirit was given so that we would have power to be witnesses. And when I first came on staff here and uh, started ministering in Aliquippa, honestly, in some ways, I, I didn't see it then, probably some of you saw it, but um, there was a fair amount of arrogance in my heart. And here's what I mean. I I just thought we were going to change the city. We were going to do something. Um, And then we're we're in the city like five minutes, and I realize, like, (laughs) what am I going to do? I have nothing to offer. One of the first experiences of power that I ever had in Aliquippa, and I wouldn't even necessarily call it a miracle. It was just like an answer to prayer, and it spoke to me. But there was this um, family that, that we'd been ministering to, and formed a relationship with in an apartment complex. And, uh, um, and it felt like a breakthrough because especially at the time, Chelsea and I moved into the community and we just felt like we didn't know anybody, which is like a terrible feeling if you're there to be on mission. Um, 
Now we've, you know, we've probably ministered to hundreds of families in our community, but at the time, we felt like we didn't know anybody. And we had formed a relationship with this family and seemed like God was opening up doors. And then, as is often the case for people who experience the instability of poverty, um, almost overnight, they moved. Um, they moved out of the apartment complex to somewhere else, and they didn't leave me a note behind, right? And so it felt like there was this breakthrough, and then it felt like a backward step, like we didn't know how to find them at all. And so I took a day to drive around the community and ask if anybody knew where they were at. Nobody knew where they were at. And finally, I was like, okay, this isn't working. I need a sausage biscuit, all right? <laughs> Come on, you do it too, Right? You say it just that way. <laughs> Come on, this isn't working. I need a sausage biscuit, right? And so I drove to a neighboring town um, and went to a fast food restaurant there. And when I pulled through the drive-thru, guess who served me my sausage biscuit? The person who I had been searching for, <laughs> right? And apparently they had just gotten a job there. Anyway, such a small thing, such a small thing. But early on, we started to learn that the mission is impossible without his power. Without his supernatural intervention, we're not getting anything done. We're not seeing change in people's lives. We're not seeing a community transformed. Without his power, something that just rose up in us that was like, God, we need your power. Our ideas aren't going to cut it. We need something from you. Now, I can tell you this. The more you take risks and you see his power show up in extraordinary ways, in time, those risks will stop feeling like risks because you get used to them, right? Um, there was a time when Steve and I were going out in the community and going to the mall and looking for sick people to pray for healing, and we saw some extraordinary things happen. I remember when we first started doing that, uh, it felt so scary, so terrifying. Now, if you want to go to the mall with me and find some sick people, I mean, it's kind of a weird experience, but I'll do it with you. Um, doesn't feel as risky as it once did. And I was looking at this passage. It was just reminded again of the need to look and listen and hear God what's next and to take the next risk. I'll tell you why. It's because I never want to be a church that is telling stories of God's supernatural intervention only from the past, the good old stories. I want present stories. And present stories often requires new risks. So God, make us those kinds of people. Which brings me to my last point, that God will always protect his primary purpose. Philip's performing these miracles, and one of the extraordinary things that happen is that there's this sorcerer named Simon. Now, whether he was a charlatan or he actually had demonic power or it was a mix of both, we don't exactly know. But regardless, uh, the people looked at him with awe. He thought he was something special. And he was probably making money by performing his signs and wonders. And as Philip preaches the good news of Jesus, Simon responds by opening up his heart and responding, and he gets baptized. Not long after this, two of the apostles from Jerusalem, Peter and John, travel to Samaria to hear and to see what is happening for themselves. Uh, when they get there, um, they encounter people who were baptized, who are real believers, and we know from uh, some of the other writings in the New Testament that at the moment you come to Jesus, you do get the Holy Spirit, but these believers had not yet experienced him in any kind of tangible, real way that would empower them for ministry. So Peter and John laid their hands on these disciples. They have an experience with the Holy Spirit. We don't know exactly what it was, but we know that it was visible. They've experienced some kind of manifestation of the Holy Spirit because Simon sees that something has happened. You know, he sees some kind of evidence. And then Simon offers money to the apostles to have this same kind of power given to him. Now, my point here is that God protects his primary purpose. When I was studying this part of the passage, what came to my mind was like one of those um, like cartoon ninjas, you know, that has just like a bunch of things thrown at it and it's just like doom, 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 all at once, you know? That's what God is doing here in Acts chapter 8 with the movement, all right? 
All kinds of things are being thrown at the movement, at this revival that's happening in Samaria. And God, at every turn, is just like, boom, 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 right? (laughs) Protecting the movement. I see three ways that he's doing that. First of all, he picks humble people. The biggest difference between Philip and Simon is that Simon thinks he's something great. It says very clearly in the passage that Philip only preaches Jesus, only talks about Jesus. For Simon, his power, his magic is about getting the attention onto him, and it has worked for Philip. It's all about getting the attention onto Jesus because every true move of God will bring more glory and more attention to Jesus, right? I'm I'm reading right now a, a biography on FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, as you know, he was the president at the worst part of the Great Depression towards the end and then through World War II. He died in office. Um, In many ways, I love FDR, so I'm enjoying this uh, biography. Um, But I'm at a point where he's about to get reelected for his second term. World War II hasn't started yet. And his closest advisor and friend, Lewis Howe, Um, has passed away unexpectedly. And this is a guy who was with FDR through multiple elections leading up to the presidency. And Eleanor Roosevelt, the first lady, had this to say about Mr. Howe. She said that he was irreplaceable for FDR, that although new friends and advisors came, FDR always missed with great sadness this friend. And here's why. Eleanor said, it's because you don't meet very many people whose personal ambition is to achieve something for someone else. But that's how this guy was dedicated to FDR. His life's ambition was about achieving something for someone else. Friends, I think we need more ambition in the church, not less. Ambitious Christians are way better than apathetic ones. So we need more ambition in the church, just not ambition for ourselves. (laughs) We need dreamers in the church just not dreaming things for ourselves, right? We need people with big imaginations who when they tell you what God has put on their heart, you think that sounds crazy, right? We need those kinds of people, but not for themselves. See, this world is filled with big dreamers and talkers who dream and talk for themselves. What the church needs What Jesus can really use is people filled with holy fire and ambition for his glory, right? Who are looking to do the next big thing for him, right? Whether they get attention for it or not, whether they get remembered or not. This guy who's an advisor to FDR, I think, uh, you know, I know about him because I'm reading this like 700-page biography. But honestly, he's not someone our kids learn about in school. His name has been forgotten. It's FDR's name, right, who gets remembered. But he had a big impact. So God picks humble people. Next, real quick, i got to wrap up. God uses leaders who don't control. I love this. Peter and John show up to see what is happening. I don't know if they ever realized all of this would happen among the Samaritans. I don't know what they understood about it. But they show up. And they're like, Philip, show us what's going on around here. And they don't scrutinize it. Instead, they just see that God is in it. And they bless it. Now, I told you that little history lesson about the Samaritans because to me, this is one of the most incredible things. These Samaritans have some messed up views about the Bible, probably. They worship at the wrong temple, probably. There's political views they have that are probably not in alignment with the apostles, political views, and I love that Peter and John do not say to them, oh, you're interested in Jesus? Well, wait, wait, wait. well, we'll get there. Let's back up here and fix these other things, and then you can be with us with Jesus. They do not make them jump through all these hoops. They're just like, oh, you're with Jesus? You're in. We are too. That's a radical kind of inclusion that puts Jesus at the center. So they don't make him jump through all these hoops. All they do is they recognize what God is doing through Philip. They don't try to take credit for it. They're just like, Philip, this is legit. (laughs) What's happening here is legit. And then they release the work. They lay their hands on these new believers, say, you have the same spirit, the same power that we do, so go and do the next great thing for God. I really think... uh, 
If we want to see Christianity, not as an institution, but as a movement, we have to embrace this kinds of leadership that does not make people jump through hoops, that just recognizes what God is doing and releases them quickly. Um, too often, we're left just with institutions and not with movement because we have very few leaders who are willing to step into this kind of leadership space, that this is what Christian leadership looks like, all right? Wherever God has put you. And the last thing, God humbles prideful people. He picks humble people. He uses leaders who don't control. And God humbles prideful people. Simon, I love this in Acts 8. Simon wants to buy this power for himself. Peter gives him this strong rebuke, which tells us one thing, that God is still protecting the movement from outside influence that might infiltrate and derail things. But it also means that God is willing to humble Simon. It's interesting. In the commentators on my shelf, if you read about this passage, the big question is, okay, was Simon a believer, a real believer, even though he got baptized? Was he a believer and then somehow not a believer? Was he a believer and got rebuked? And then the question is, did he repent at the end? He says this thing to Peter, like, pray for me, help me. But is that actually repentance? I love that Acts chapter 8 does not give us a conclusion to Simon's story because it's reinforcing the point that this story ain't about Simon, Right? That's why it's left that way. Simon thinks he's the center of the story. And God's like, you're not the center of the story. I'm not going to let you be the center of the story. I'm so glad that God protects uh, his movement from outside pride. But I'm also glad that he is willing to humble us. That he's willing to rebuke us. That he's willing to speak a hard word to us. That he's willing to bring us low so that we can be used in new ways by God. Amen? All right, here's how I want to close today. Um, if one of the musicians could come forward. Number one, I, I just want to say, if the Spirit of God is stirring any of what I just preached in your heart in any way, I want to encourage you not to miss that. Listen, I, I, this is the way the Holy Spirit works. On, on one hand, we don't have to make anything happen. You don't have to like, try to make anything happen with God, work something up or something like that. Um, on the other hand, it says this in Hebrews, that when he speaks, we should respond. And I have found that when I respond to his voice quickly and with sincerity, that he often does his best work. All I have to do is just make myself available. Um, last week, uh, Steve, who's one of the pastors here, um, took a risk at the end of service, and I loved it. I want to point this out because I want to say, I love it when you take risks. Do you hear me on that this morning? I love it when you take risks, even if it makes you look silly or you're not sure what to think about or people wonder. I would rather have people taking risks than not taking risks, all right? So he took a risk. Um, you know, he said, hey, does the date May 15th mean anything to anyone? Now, very simply, at our church, we would call that a word of knowledge. All we mean by that is that sometimes, and there's examples of this in the New Testament, it's not what I'm preaching on this morning, but sometimes the Holy Spirit will give someone some information and it connects to somebody else and it's just a way to open up their heart to what God is doing. We've seen this happen here at the church. We've seen it happen out on the street too. And uh, Steve asked if that date meant anything to anyone. No one raised their hand. Did anyone come to you later and say, no? And I loved what Steve said. Maybe God is just, you know, using this to humble me. I love that. I love that Steve doesn't take himself so seriously that he can't take that kind of risk in front of you. I love the way that we are a community of grace that just says, look, let's try. Now, a bunch of things could have happened there, right? Maybe the date did mean something to someone and they just still haven't come to Steve. By the way, if that's you, for goodness sake, go to Steve. <laughs> All right? Um, but, or maybe it meant something else completely. Um, or maybe it was nothing at all. Either way, it's okay. Because it's okay to take risks, all right? Um, so I'm going to ask Steve and Tim to come forward. This was just on my heart today, and this, we're not going to make this long. Um, but as we um, are going to transition to prayer, why don't you come over? So we're going to transition to uh, prayer here in a little bit. Um, the three of us have just been praying and saying, God, what's next? Um, 
Is there something next that you want to do in someone's heart? And so uh, we're going to take the risk and just share with you some things that God put on our heart in prayer. If it connects, then let it connect. If it means nothing to you, then just disregard it. It's not a big deal, all right? So I'm going to go first. Uh, All day this morning, I could not get out of my mind um, work environments. And uh, here's how it came to my mind, that someone's desk has moved. Um, And the way it came into my mind was that at your new desk, it's like you can't even put your stapler and pencil holder and stuff like where you want it to, like, like how it was at the old place. Like there's all of these just little annoyances with your work situation having changed. Um, I just feel like if that's you, uh, I think God wants you to ask what's next. Um, and in the place that he's put you, in the place that might seem annoying, um, just to ask him what's the next thing he's going to do. So listen, that could be literal. Or it could just be a picture of what you're experiencing emotionally, all right? Um, I got the word uh, affliction. And I believe for some of you over whom word curses were spoken, uh, the Lord is delivering you from those word curses and the spirit of affliction. How many of you know that um, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth? And by his stripes, you are healed. In the name of Jesus. Um, and then also uh, the low right back. Is there anyone who has pain in their low right back? Yeah? I believe the Lord is healing you right now um, in your back. And I would ask you um, to, you know, come to me or one of these guys um, afterwards and um, let us know, um, you know, on a scale to 1 to 10 pain level, if it's uh, decreased and um, how much. And, uh we may even pray for you if you're not completely healed. So, yeah. So a word curse, uh, an example of a word curse, may be like um, you'll never be good at anything, or you're a good for nothing um, kind of thing. And it's like the Lord is just replacing that with His word um, over you, that you're loved, um, you're not forsaken, you're not forgotten, and not only that but you were bought with a price. Your life is worth the life of Jesus himself. Um, first of all, so I, maybe Steve didn't even catch this, but um, I was sitting in a Burger King on Monday, maybe? Because that's what I, I do sometimes when I, I was, I, <laughs> fast food is pretty amazing. But um, I, uh, no, I was, I was working on a project and I had to wait for something to dry, so I was, getting lunch and sitting there waiting for that um and on the tv they had this tv there there was this like street musician who was like guessing birthdays and he's like your birthday is may 15th and uh so i didn't even think about it then but later that night like that popped in my head and i couldn't remember what steve said but i i texted him and the thing that he had was like it really spoke to where i was um i had been like really worried about something all day and like that it, it, it was a big deal for me so Maybe you didn't even realize that, but that was helpful for me. Um, but uh, when I was just kind of thinking earlier, I had the sense of calling was the word um, that I f- was feeling. And um, a lot of times, Joel will talk about being on mission or feeling called to things. And if, if you kind of have no idea what that is, but you feel like you'd like to know, um, or you don't know what that is for you specifically, but you'd like to have something, or if you are in a place where you felt like that's, you've had something in the past and it's gone or it never really happened or they must have got it wrong or I got it wrong because that's obviously not what my life looks like. Um, there's this verse, it's in Romans uh, 11. And it says that, that God's gifts and his calling are irrevocable. So first of all, if that was you where you're, you had something and it's gone or you had something and, and, and you feel like it's never really come around, that doesn't mean that that's not true. It just means maybe it hasn't happened yet. And I think that there's some extra grace just for whether it's, it's you need grace to, pit, to wait and be patient or whether it's like something needs to happen. And, and sometimes it's just asking God, he does it. Um, I, if that's you, I'd encourage you to get, come up. Uh, we'll have prayer teams up here to get some prayer for that today. Um, and if it's you're in a place where you'd like to, to know about that or you'd like to have something specific, um, if it's okay, I was feeling like we should just take a second 
and just ask God. Um, that doesn't mean you need an answer right now, but I think when we ask God for those kinds of things, he does them. Sometimes it takes a little bit. Sometimes it, it comes right away. But um, if we could all just like close our eyes and just kind of relax, um, just try to clear your mind, you know, and not, not think about what's after, whether you're hungry or you need to get out of here, get your kids, um, just for like 30 seconds and just say, God, what do you have me here for? What am I supposed to be doing? What does that mean? For those of you who are feeling something, um, I just wanted to, to, to say this because I, I think this is what God's doing, is a lot of times his calling really intersects with our areas of biggest weakness because that's the area that his glory just gets to shine through the biggest. Um, it's not the areas that things that we're best at always that he calls us into. A lot of times it, it's where our biggest wounds and our biggest weaknesses lie. Um, just because he likes to redeem those places. Um, so if that's you, I, I just encourage you to, to take steps and jump into those areas, even when, especially when it's scary, or especially when it's um, you feel like you, you don't have what it takes to do it. Um, so if you're on the prayer team today, you could come forward. Um, and if everyone could stand, we'll kind of close things up. So again, if any of those those things that we said mean something to you, or if you have feel anything at all, like physically, uh, mentally, financially, whatever is going on, and you'd like some prayer, there's prayer teams up here who can help out with that. Um, but we'll just close. Uh, and I, I wanted to close with this uh, this um, it, it was it's an Old Testament kind of blessing that Moses said over the the people of Israel. But um, the Lord bless you and keep you. And he's make his face shine on you and be gracious to you and give you peace. We'll see you guys all later.